Listen, if you would take your Bible and open it up to the book of Ephesians, that would be awesome. I'm going to stay within our text. We'll certainly turn towards a, a Christmas passage on Friday and Sunday. And in many ways, this... This is as well a focus on the work of Jesus Christ. Let me read 10 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 6 and specifically the breastplate of righteousness. There Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. It says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, would you quicken our hearts and our minds to hear certainly one of the greatest truths in all of the Bible in all of the world, the righteousness of God. And so, Father, tune our hearts. Father, wipe me away. May your word be seen. May we glory in it. May you pick up men and women even this day, spiritually, Father, that have been burdened and uh, just challenged by, certainly it could be our flesh, but sometimes from the very evil one himself to rob him, to rob us of our joy. So guide us as we look to your word in your name. Amen. In 1655, a Puritan minister by the name of William Gurnall, a pastor in Suffolk, Suffolk, I think I said, you could ask Neil Mason if I said that right. Um, He published a book, and the book is famous on the armor of God. It's called The Christian in Complete Armor. And he said this, did Gurnall, in heaven we shall appear not in armor, but he said, but in robes of glory. But here in pieces of armor are to be, our pieces of armor are to be worn day and night, and we we must walk, we must work. He said we must sleep in them or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. In this armor, we are to stand and watch and never relax our vigilance for the saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. Every fly dares venture to creep on a sleeping lion. And he goes on to cite Samson whose hair was cut by Delilah while he slept. King Saul, whose spear um, David stole while he was asleep. And of course, who can forget in the New Testament, Eutychus, who slept while Paul preached and he fell down to his death 
only to be revived again. So don't sleep this morning in this message at all. And so we have this command, as we read, to put on the full armor of God. And what Paul gives us, we'll just say from 10 down to verse 20, is three commands. Not to win the battle. You notice that he never says win the battle. The battle has already been won. It's been won by Christ on the cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But he does give three commands to stand so that we would be victorious over Satan. The first command in verse 10 was for spiritual strength to be strong in the Lord. Then there was a command in verse 11 similar to put on the spiritual suit because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And then that third and final and maybe strong command is the command to stand strong. In fact, you'll note at the end of verse 13, as we've read, having done all to stand firm, in verse 14, stand therefore, and then having fastened on the belt of truth, and here this morning, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So no doubt Paul's mind, as I mentioned, is steeped in the Old Testament, even in, I think it's Isaiah 59, 17, there he was seen, was Messiah, with a breastplate of righteousness. So I said, first and foremost, every single piece mentioned is steeped in Old Testament language. Maybe I'll show you that in a couple of weeks, and I did a little bit last week, but no doubt he's in a Roman cell. He is in chains in 620 and likely he's standing next to or sitting next to a guard and he is in armor. They were always in their armor when they were serving and so Paul details six pieces if you will. Uh, It's not all of them. If you look in history there's other pieces but he details six pieces of a soldier's armor to put on to stand firm. The first piece we looked last week was the the belt of truth. We defined that not so much as subjective truthfulness of our truth lived out, but rather the objective truth of the Word of God, the whole truth of the Word of God. And today we come quickly here to the second piece of armor because after a Roman soldier, that we believe this is in order, would put the belt on first, then secondly, verse 14 there, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So let's discuss that today for our time in worship, the breastplate of righteousness. I want to ask And then I want to answer three questions, okay? One, what is the breastplate? We'll be brief there. Secondly, what does, and here's the crucial question, the righteousness refer to, okay? What does it refer to? And then thirdly, why is this breastplate of righteousness so vital in our battle against the enemy? Now, I just want to prep you. I'm going to spend the majority of time in point two, but you got to hang with me so that when we get to the point three, when we begin to say why this breastplate is so vital that I could drive it home. But all of this will honor the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, what is this breastplate? It's a breastplate of righteousness, but in verse 14, he's taking a illustration of what he's looking at 
and he tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, if you want to be a literalist, the command here is stand, and then it has all these participles attaching to it. So you're standing, and the way you stand is to put on the belt of truth. And here, secondly, to put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is it? Well, I I think in your mind you would understand that the breastplate was made of a very large piece of metal that was either molded, and in some cases it was hammered, if you will, to conform to the body. It went, did this breastplate from the base of the neck, extending all the way down to the upper thigh. And obviously, the breastplate was there to protect, it's not hard to see or think, the, the chest area. It, it protected the heart. It protected the lungs. It protected the intestine and the other vital organs. Certainly, you would uh, think with me that an injury to the arm, an injury to the leg could be overcome, at least if you're a soldier, not a swimmer, but an injury to the arm, an injury to the leg, you could, you could work through. But a blow to the heart would be fatal. And I mentioned last week that their battles were not in a bunker a hundred yards away. The majority of their battle, the majority of it was in hand-to-hand combat. And so the breastplate was absolutely crucial. In fact, one ancient writer called it, eh, for the sake of a, a phrase, he called it the heart protector. Obviously, beloved, those who serve uh, in, as cops, men and women, they wear a bulletproof what? Vest. At least the last I checked, they were wearing Kevlar. It would stop the bullets. It's a chest protector from incoming fire. And so this breastplate protected the soldier's heart and vital organs. That's what it was. There was some question if it was on the front. Some writers said it was also on the back. I'm not, a, not quite sure on that. I think here he had it for sure on the front to keep away the, the driving of the short sword. But secondly, okay, second question. Or here's the, yeah, the second question. What does the righteousness refer to? Look again at 14. You can see it. It's a breastplate of righteousness. What does it refer to? Well, let me first say a couple things here. What it does not refer to, okay? It does not refer to our own self-righteousness, number one. You know that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. So this righteousness, this breastplate isn't your righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It's not something to be noticed by people. Paul said in Romans 10, 3 to the Jews, for not knowing about God's righteousness, they sought to establish their own and they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were unaware of the righteousness of God and so the Jews and people today are seeking to establish their own. But beloved, you know and I know Romans 3.10 says that there is none, what? 
righteous. That's all we need to say there. The blessed parade of righteousness could not be your own righteousness. Secondly, okay, under this second question, it, I don't believe, could be referring to practical righteousness. There's some scholars and some theologians that would teach here that this breastplate of righteousness is your righteousness lived out. Not so much a self-righteousness, but in coming to Christ, here is the way you stand against the enemy. It includes part of your righteousness to keep the evil one away. This would be the thought. It's your righteous life. So even as they interpreted the belt of truth as subjective truthfulness lived out, there's some who look at this piece and say, this is practical righteousness lived out. In other words, you keep the devil at bay, not through self-righteousness, but living out the truths that you know to be true. And certainly there's an element of that. But I, I think this seems to be a difficult interpretation for me. And I, I could be here for a few weeks, we won't. But jo, Job, you know and I know, was a blameless man, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. And yet that didn't keep the evil one from attacking him, right? Now, I don't know about you, but it says Job was a blameless man, upright in his whole life, and the evil one still came after him. You know that. I think of the scores of biographies that I've personally read and and read to my children of the great men and women of the faith. I mean, what believer uh, could claim a practical righteousness so as to be untouchable? So I really find that second view not really uh, holding weight. And then I think of the disciples. They were all crucified or killed for their faith with the exception of the apostle John. You think of those disciples. You think of the book of Revelation. And so I think this seems appropriate. So you say, okay, Scott, it doesn't mean those two. What does it mean? Here, thirdly, the right view, I think. It refers to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, and I'll explain that. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, that God actually, through the work of Christ, declares you righteous, declares you just, God counts you as righteous, he counts you as just by a transfer from something else. Now, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, this ideal of the imputed righteousness of Christ. An alternate term for it would be the justification by faith. So, beloved, stay with me on the argument here. I would interpret the breastplate in this way, quote, which is righteousness, Not your righteousness, but it is righteousness. You say, well, Scott, what are you you getting at here? Take your Bible, look over um, to to the right, just one book. Look over to Philippians chapter 3. Let me read you about not your own righteousness, not practical righteousness, but the imputed righteousness in the life of Paul. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 3, 4? Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, I have more. And then remember, he was circumcised 
on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He says of himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, and then Paul, as you know, was a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, watch the language, under the law. In other words, if anybody kept the law, Paul said in 3.6, he was blameless. He said, but whatever I gained, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. He says, I count them but rubbish. I always like that Greek word. Skubalon is the word. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here it is, verse 9. And be found in him, Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from I'll interpret it, law-keeping, but the one which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is the thought here. This is the imputed righteous, not his own works, not his own doing, not what he is doing in his effort to please God, not his zeal, not his circumcision, not the fact that if there's Hebrews, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was taught by a famous rabbi. You you say, okay, Scott, tell me a little bit more about this righteousness. How does it work? It works this way, and this is vital for you. This is vital for your stand against the enemy. Here's how this works. Do you remember the text in 2 Corinthians 5.21? For our sake, go to the next one. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what he's describing. That phrase there he, who knew no sin. Now, you and I know that the Lord Jesus Christ never sinned. Peter the apostle said that he committed no sin. We know this. John the apostle said that in him, in Christ, there was no sin, 1 John 3, 5. The writer of Hebrews said, and you know this, he was tempted in all things, yet without what? Sin. He lived a perfect life. So Corinthians says he, that for our sake, he made him, he says there, who knew no sin, but prior to that, to be sin. What, what a statement. So in other words, in the doctrine of justification, God forgives your sin And then at the same time, he imputes into your account the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might become the righteousness of God. So here's the doctrine of justification. Something is removed, your sin, and something is added. It would be the righteousness of Christ. So beloved, God made Christ to be sin. He charged the guilt of your sin to the person of Christ. Then God Almighty credits the perfect life of Christ, 
lived out in obedience to your account. It is an amazing thought. There's various hymns that describe this wonderful, wonderful gift. Wesley and his hymn, And Can It Be? You know this one, maybe some of you by heart, when he penned this line, no condemnation now I, what, dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and then this line, and clothed in what? Righteousness divine. In other words, the miracle of Christ The miracle of his work, the miracle of his death is that when you come to a saving relationship with Christ, it almost takes your breath away. He removes all your sin negatively, then positively he puts into your account the perfect life of Christ. And so Wesley would say in that hymn that he's clothed in righteousness divine. There's no more condemnation. If you've come to a relationship with Christ, you actually have the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I think I've shared this with you before, this ideal of what's taken away and what's added. The reformers called it the great exchange. I mean, it's unbelievable when you go back to the time if you've come to Christ, there was a great exchange that took place. There was in your life, in my life at 14, an alien, the reformers called it an alien righteousness. In other words, an alien righteousness from outside of yourself came to you. In other words, it was given to you. A righteousness that you did not work for. A righteousness that you did not live out. You stand, if you will, with this breastplate on and it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to you, put into your account. There is a famous hymn. Uh, it's, it's by Top Lady. It's Rock of Ages. And the, again, the words of the language of, of these lyrics. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. I get that. It's not us. I'm hiding in you. He says, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow. And then this, be of sin, what? The double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. It's a great line where it says, be of sin, the double cure. What's he talking about? To get into the presence of God, you need righteousness. You don't have righteousness. And when our Lord Jesus Christ lived that life, died on the cross, was raised on the third day, it became the double cure. What do you mean? Top lady was his name, Augustus Top Lady. The double cure. You have sin that you can't do anything about. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And Almighty God, in justifying, gives you, takes away your sin. But if at that point he just took away sin, you've heard me say before, you still couldn't get into the presence of God. You say, well, Scott, of course he died for my sin. No, I meant what I said. If all he did was took you away, took away your sin, 
you and I would remain neutral. You need something else to get into the presence of God. What you need is what? Righteousness. You don't have that righteousness. You don't possess that righteousness. It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that was put into your bank account. I submit to you, this is the greatest news ever. Amen? I mean, this is unbelievable to even speak on this. That when you bow your knee to the Savior, he removes all of your sin. But then secondly, he puts into your account the righteous life of Jesus Christ, which you did not live, but he lived. So you are then declared not guilty for your sins. And you are at the same time declared righteous before God. That, beloved, is the doctrine of justification. That, beloved, is also the term righteousness of God. Let me put it another way for you. When Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, you lived a perfect life through him, okay? When he died on the cross, you, what, died on the cross. That's why Paul would say, I've been crucified with what? Christ. When he died, Paul died. When he was raised, we were raised. And one day we'll be fully raised. But listen, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. You died on the cross. All that Jesus did in his sinless life and in his sin-bearing death, he did as your substitute. It's an unbelievable. There, there's the, the double cure. In fact, even the hymn, Christ the Solid Rock. Some of you know this one really well. It was written by Edward Moat, and it speaks of the future. And I ask, can you have this confidence today? When he shall come, second coming, with trumpet sound, oh, may I, th- in, may, oh, may I then in him be found. And here's the line. Dressed in what? Righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne on Christ, I, the solid rock, I stand. But there it is. I'm asking you, are you dressed in righteousness alone? But the question would be asked, just track with me for a moment. How does this become yours? I mean, maybe you've been coming for a year and you don't, quite understand this. Maybe you're in fifth grade and you need to understand this, or sixth grade. How does this happen, okay? How are your sins taken away? Well, practically, look over to the book of Romans, okay? And keep your hand or a marker in Romans as we proceed forward. The question is, how does it become yours? I mean, how do we gain that? Enough for me to say practically, this was done through the cross. Look at Romans 3.24. It couldn't be clear. We are justified, the idea of made righteous, by his grace as a gift. And here's the key line in 3.24. Through the redemption That is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, verse 25, as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He he died on the cross. 
Look over at Romans, if you will, in chapter 5. Did he not say something similar there? Since therefore we have now been 5-9 justified by his, what? Blood, much more than shall we be saved from the wrath of God. There is the means, if you will. It's his death of on the cross for our sin. In fact, maybe you grew up singing that other hymn by Wesley, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Do you remember what he said of Christ? That he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Here's the line. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood, what? Availed for me. So it's through his death, but just another question. How can you be made righteous before God? I mean, that really is the ultimate question. What can we do to gain this status? And the answer is nothing, because we've already said in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not, what, one, Man could never attain to the righteousness of God. So, beloved, here's the story of Christmas. God sent his son into the world that he might give us his righteousness, okay? You say, but how does that righteousness come to you? Like, I want to be really clear. And I want to be clear to you who have the opportunity to share the gospel at this Christmas season with people who are just disheartened with life. How do you get that? Well, look in Romans 3. I want to show you something. I'm, a, I'm trying to ask and answer, how does that righteousness become ours? Remember when Paul said this in 321? Now, the righteousness of God, we need that to get into his presence, has been manifested, underlined this, apart from the law. In other words, whatever, however you're going to get it, it doesn't come through the law. It doesn't come through deeds. It doesn't come through missions trip. It doesn't come through baptism. It comes, he says, apart from the law. Look at 21 though, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, 322, through, here's the instrument. What is it? Faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, you receive that righteousness, you receive that double cure, not through something you have done, not through your effort or my effort, you receive it through faith. Now, always in the New Testament, faith has a direct object, and I just wanna be clear. You're not saved by your faith, or your faith becomes a, what, work. You're saved through your faith always in a person, and the person is Jesus Christ. So God, in his economy of salvation from Genesis to Revelation, set up the instrument not to be yourself, but to be through the avenue of faith in Christ Jesus. In fact, 
if you're still in Romans 3, would you take a look at this? It couldn't be any clearer. It says in 3.26, it was to show, here's the phrase, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, in other words, he's punishing sin, and the justifier, the one who makes righteous, is the one in 3.26 who has, what? Faith in Christ. In fact, back up in one verse, 3.25, God, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to re, be received by what? Faith. In other words, the instrument here, how this becomes yours, is through faith. It's not your faith. It's not walking an aisle. It's not praying a prayer. It's because you drop to your knees and you realize you don't have a righteousness of your own and you need that double cure. You need your sins removed and you need your righteousness added into your account, the life of Christ. And it comes to us by faith. Look down in your Bible at 328. For we hold, Paul says in Romans 3, 28, that one is justified by what? Faith apart from the works of the law. I mean, this is all over. Look down in Romans 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? It says Abraham, and then he puts it in the verb, believed God and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. This is that famous place. This is what the Reformation was all about. He believed in God and his promise and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, once Abraham believed, not only was his sin removed, but the righteousness, future projected, of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ was put into his account. Look at Romans 4 verse 5. And to the one... This is shocking to some who does not work, here's the verb again, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his or her faith is counted as righteous. So how do you get it? Through faith. And I'd ask you, have you come to a place of saving faith? Have you cried out? in your heart to God. Doesn't matter if you've been baptized when you were little. Doesn't matter if you've gone on missions trip. I'm asking you, as we think of this theme of Christmas, and I'll get to it on the breastplate of righteousness, it comes to you through the agency of faith. And so here, to be declared righteous, to be justified, comes to us by faith alone in Christ. Now you and I know that not everybody teaches that. And certainly here was the difference in the Reformation is the Roman Catholic Church does not just teach what I told you. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that righteousness or the doctrine of justification comes through what instrument? What is it? Yeah, listen, I'm not trying to be harsh if you're visiting today and you're a Roman Catholic. Their instrument is, well, it's faith, but it's not faith alone. But their instrument is baby, what? Baptism. So when you are a Roman Catholic, you're going to rush that young baby, boy or girl, off to the priest. And he's going to baptize that baby. And in that process of baptism... That baby is being made righteous. 
they would teach this, that the primary instrumental cause of justification is baptism and that the the second, if you will, or the sacrament of penance is the secondary restorative cause. So they don't believe what I just taught. You're gonna rush your baby to be sprinkled because in the sprinkling of a baby, you are saving and redeeming that baby. Listen, that's just, I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just telling you that's in their doctrine and it's in their doctrine today. And that is why I've shared once before, whenever I've gone to a Catholic funeral, doesn't matter how that man or woman lived, it's a liturgy. The father opens up that page and says, because of so-and-so's baptism, they have gone into heaven. So if you're a baby, you're gonna rush them into that. But I'm just saying to us, to you, that the biblical instrument is through faith. Not the faith of your parents, not some deed, not something you've done. It's because you fall on your knees and you beat your breast and you say, God be merciful to me, a what? A sinner. In other words, what faith is, is not your faith. Faith is in the direct object of Christ. And so you run to him. You flee to him. Nothing in my hand I bring, top lady said. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. In other words, all you do, it's not your faith, it's your faith in what he has done. In fact, let me show you a killer scripture on this. Look over to the book of Galatians. It just was so good. I want you to to see this. Look at Galatians chapter 2 and Paul clearly speaks of this type of of, uh, faith. It's 2.16 of Galatians where he says there in 2.16 of Galatians, he says, we know that a person, this is what I've been saying, is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in who? Jesus Christ. There's the object. So that we who have believed, a verb, a noun is faith, we who have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be, here it is, justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be what? Justified. So beloved, faith is the instrument. Let me be clear. It is not the cause you know this. And it's not the cause. I just, I want to be clear. It's an instrument that God has provided all the way back in the book of Genesis 15. But it's not the cause. And what I mean by that is you're not justified because of your faith. If that were true, uh, we said, then we would be justified on the basis of our work. Faith becomes a work. We're not justified on account of faith, but we are justified. Here's the point. Through faith in Christ. We're justified through faith in the work of Christ, not our faith That Christ being the instrument, faith is utter despair of everything except for Christ. 
Meaning this, that once you see the gospel for the beauty it is, then you've got nothing left. And you in such utter despair flee and run to the cross and confess Christ. I just read yesterday, if I could get it by heart, John Ewart, he came to Christ here a few years ago, came to Christ Woody, you just got back. He came to Christ at a men's Bible study on Wednesday. One of our pastors was preaching, and right there on the spot, John said, I had an overwhelming sense of the guilt of my own sin. Interesting. Because when God works in the heart, your sin is exposed. And then once your sin gets exposed, then he fled to Jesus Christ and his righteous life. And so if anything faith does, it's not yours. It makes the sinner conscious of his or her desperate condition. You say, Scott, why is it by faith? I mean, it's the instrument. You know that. I just... Why though? Look over at Romans 4. It's pretty profound. One of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. In in Romans chapter, uh, yeah, go back. I was in Galatians. In Romans chapter 4, in verse 16, do you see it there? He says, this is why. Why, Paul? It depends on faith. Why, Paul? Watch this purpose clause in 4.16. In order that the promise may rest on what? Grace. You say, what does that mean, pastor? It's by faith so that the promise rests on God's grace, giving you mercy to a sinner who didn't deserve it. It's not your faith. It's faith in Christ. And here's the promise that it would rest on grace. Do you not even feel this morning coming into Christmas that you've been blessed? That it's been grace that called you out? That it's his mercy that called you out? That it's his grace and mercy that convicted you of your sin? Well, why is it so? That it might be of grace so that God gets the glory and so that you and I are humbled? This is the gospel. In fact, look down in 324 of Romans. This is stunning. We're justified by his grace as a... What? As a gift. You say, but Scott, I thought it was through faith. It is through faith. But even faith itself in the Bible is a, what? Gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. And it is not your own doing. What's he talking about there? The faith that you came as an instrument is not your own doing, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is a gift of God, not a, a result of works that no one may, what? Boast. This is the hymn writer. It's one of my favorite. Um, and it goes like this. Think of the words just as we've been speaking. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. There the writer says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on what? Jesus' name. You're not trusting yourself. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. 
So wait, we're, we're still in Ephesians 6. Come back. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Not your, you get it, self-righteousness. Not even at this point, I'd go to Ephesians 4 somewhere else, not even practical righteousness. Put on the imputed righteousness that God credits to your account through faith in Christ. And this brings me to the third question and answer here. Why is the breastplate of righteousness then so vital? Here's why. Because Satan, in your battle to please God, seeks to attack your righteous standing before God. Now, I'm going to say he seeks to attack it because once you're in the Father's hand, who can snatch you out of it? No one. But he's going to attack you. So what are you talking about? He's saying, put it on because you need some heart protection. You need a mind protected. You need your emotions protected. So here's the thought, just as the, the breastplate protected the soldier's heart and vital organs, so too the spiritual breastplate protects the believer's heart. And let me just say this, and now we're into it. He's after your heart, right? In Jewish thinking, the heart represented the mind, the whole person. That is why you finished the sentence in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than what? All else. He's talking about the way you and I think and it's deceitful. Who could know it? And then in 17, 10, only God can know it. But it was Jesus who said in Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, the next one is murders, adulteries. They come out of the heart. You know this next one in Proverbs 23, 7. And as a man thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. You and I are a product of what we think. And it was the breastplate that covered this vital area of the heart. You say, well, Scott, we have that in Christ. I know, but Paul's telling you to put it on. You say, well, why? Because you, and I'm going to say myself, you tend towards legalism. That's why you tend towards legalism. You think sometimes you're saved by grace, but you're kept in his favor through the law. And then you get on the treadmill of righteousness and you've lost sight of the breastplate. You've lost sight of the finished work of Christ. Or there may be some in here that I say have such a tender conscience that there is within you a sense of brooding, of foreboding, if you will, that God Almighty is never satisfied with you. And if you're not careful, Satan is going to attack the mind, he's gonna attack the heart, he's gonna attack the emotions with false messaging. And these areas, beloved, are protected by the breastplate of righteousness. So here's the solution. It is the daily reality of remembering the great exchange. Do you remind yourself? Do you rehearse that? 
My sins, all of them, have been taken on the cross by Jesus Christ. Do you rehearse this every day, though you feel dirty, though at times you sin and you and I fall short, do you rehearse the righteousness of Jesus Christ in your life and what he's done in his righteous life? Listen, at times we're thrilled with joy, personally, experientially. We're filled with wonder at the experience of God. We're thrilled with his nearness. We're thrilled with his imminence, if you will, his closeness, and it's all good. But then I know that Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses you before God, what? Day and night. Day and night. You say, well, what is he doing? He would love to have you doubt your, and have no assurance of your salvation. If he could cause you to doubt your salvation, then you walk around joyless. Because you just never quite know, am I in or out? Well, listen, here's righteousness that is deposited into your account, sin removed and taken away, but he would just love to throw you off just a little bit. So that instead of you thinking about the greatness of the gospel at Christmas or when you wake up, you're thinking about your job, you're thinking about your coaching job, you're thinking about some health issue and you forget the breastplate of righteousness. It's very easy to become overwhelmed by sin, to begin to think of your own righteous acts that you need to do, to begin in some cases to seek perfectionism that Satan at that time begins to call into question your righteousness. He is in 1 Peter chapter 5 a roaring lion seeking to what? Devour. I mentioned last week that lions roar before they eat their prey. He is the deceiver He would love to take people unawares, if you will. He would love to use trickery. He would love to use deception. He will sow false teachers, will Satan, in the life of the church. He will begin to whisper as part of his name, you're not a Christian. Or he'll say something like, sorry Christian are you. You've been in the faith 20 years and you're still struggling with this and he will beat you down so much that you forget the breastplate. That you forget that when you came to Christ, he forgave your sin. You say, well, Scott, it's gonna lead to antinomianism. No, it's not. Once you understand and fall more in love with Christ, then you'll wanna honor him more and more in your life. But the Satan, the evil one is doing this. He's whispering, you're too dirty, you're too despicable, you're too vile, you're too guilty, you're too worthless, you don't love him enough. In fact, are you a believer at all? Are you even a Christian? And here's what he's doing. He's seeking to take away your confidence. This is the breastplate. It provided the soldier when he put the belt on, then he put the, it's, it's confidence, I could rush into battle. He's seeking, he can't rob you of salvation, but he'd love to take your confidence away. You know, you're so sick, something's coming up. You're just sick, you've been to every doctor, nobody has answers. You've sought to honor the Lord your whole life. 
And somehow, why do I get this? Why do I get this burden? Why do I get this job? How did I get this boss? And all of a sudden, you're going down a path and you're forgetting this. And what Paul's saying is, listen, you wrestle not against flesh and blood. You need to stand. You need to put the belt of objective truth on. And then you need to fasten on. You've already been given the breastplate of Jesus Christ. But here, you need to appropriate it and remember it. And then you need to remember this, that when you fail, amen, there is one who has never, what, failed. When you come short, there's one who's never come short. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He never sinned. And you are accepted in him. You are righteous in Christ's perfect life and in his perfect obedience. Listen, do you ever wonder why he lived 33 years? I mean, why not just for God, just send down his son And in a matter of one week, why doesn't he just die on the cross? He doesn't. He's born into a manger. He's born under the law. He keeps the law. He lives in perfect obedience and he does it for 33 years because he does what you can't do. He did what you can't do. He did, he, he, he accomplishes what we fall so short in. So we, we look to him and so put on the breastplate of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ and stand against the evil one because Satan himself is going to fire false guilt to your conscience. He's gonna set depression in on you. He's gonna overwhelm you. And no wonder Paul said in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no, what? Condemnation. Not for the world. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No wonder Paul said in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, then what? Who can be against you? Listen, it's Christmas time. We ought to be bearing the most joy of anybody because of this double cure that's been extended to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did not Paul say in Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's what? Elect, and the answer is no one, nada. Okay, that's my Spanish, okay? Nada, no one. Why does he say that? Oh, because there will be people who do that. Be, there might even be human people who do that to you. But it could be that there would also be the evil one doing that. In fact, Paul said in Romans eight thirty five, who is the one who condemns? And the answer is no one, because you've already been judged in Christ taking your sin and then imputing the righteousness to Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, who can separate me from the what? The love of God. Shall height, shall death, nothing, not, not any power or principality can ever separate you from the love of God. Let me put it this way. There's two books, okay? There's two books. Let me see if I can do this. In this book, it's blank, Okay. Let's say it has a thousand pages in it, okay? And every time you sin in your life, there is a mark put in that book. I mean, that's our life. And I'd ask you if this was your book, it began empty at birth, how many marks would there be there now? Not just of action, but of thought, of conscience, of conviction. How many marks are there? Is there any part in a thousand page book that is not marked? Then on the other hand, is the book of Jesus Christ, okay? It's his life. In this book is his sinless life. And the question would be, how many marks are there? 
How many marks has his life been marred? And the answer is, there's no marks there in this book because he never sinned. He's absolutely sinless. And on the cross, if you will, God takes this book, our sins, and he puts them on Jesus Christ. Then he takes the book in the right hand, the sinless book of Christ, and he puts that book in this hand by therefore, if you will, justifying you. He puts his sin and his, or his life into us. My sin goes to Christ in this hand and his righteousness comes to me. Grace Church, listen. That is the best news in the whole world, isn't it? I don't care what you get for Christmas. This is the best gift, is it not? And you're gonna have the opportunity to be around unsaved family members. Why don't you share the righteousness of Christ with them? Why don't you share the beauty of what Christ has done and allow that to be the greatest Christmas present ever? Praise God. Would you bow your head and pray with me?